Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Tuesday the 1st of December. Today, tens of thousands more troops and a new high representative in Kabul. Barack Obama prepares a key announcement on Afghanistan. I think the intention is to sort of draw back and protect the cities, the big population areas, and cede territory to the Taliban. Also today, how passengers cope with London's overcrowded tube. In some bits of the line, about four passengers for every square metre, so it's uncomfortably close. And sometimes people just go into this automatic pilot routine, as it were, just to cope with it. The police pay damages to a rape victim whose case they failed to investigate. Having had the delay of the papers being lost on the desk, by the time they came to it, that footage would have been wiped already. Hello Dubai, John Henley reports from the desert city that's triggered panic on the financial markets. It's kind of like Blade Runner, but a bit warmer, I suppose. I mean, it's just, the whole place looks like some kind of computer-generated futuristic landscape. And Stephen Morris is in Westbury's Submendip and its library in a telephone box. First, here's Bill Overton with the news. Five British soldiers have been arrested by the Iranian Navy. They were delivering a racing yacht from Bahrain to Dubai six days ago and may have drifted into Iranian waters when their propeller stopped working. The British government's kept the incident secret while trying to negotiate their release. Families have been told they're healthy and being well treated. Barack Obama is going to announce a substantial increase in forces in Afghanistan in a televised address this evening after briefing congressional leaders. The US president will also explain his new strategy for the country, including his plan to appoint an international high representative in Kabul to oversee foreign involvement. Tiger Woods has withdrawn from his own golf tournament, the Chevron World Challenge, being played this week. It's after his controversial car accident at the entrance to his home in Florida. He still refused to be interviewed by police about the incident. He's also announced on his website that he'll not play in any more tournaments this year. Social workers will have to earn a licence to practice under reforms being announced today. It's a recommendation from a government task force in a plan to overhaul social work after the Baby Peter case. Managers will also have to give much more supervision for trainee social workers. In case you hadn't guessed it, this November was one of the wettest on record. Cumbria, where they're still clearing up after the floods, had the most rain for the month since records began in just one day when 12 inches fell. And the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research is warning so much ice is melting around the continent it could cause sea levels to rise by more than four feet by the end of the century. That's the story on the front page of The Times this morning. Under the headline, Major Cities Are at Risk from Rising Sea Level Threat, it says cities like Calcutta would be devastated. New York and London would have to spend billions on flood defences. But the most popular front page story is of the British sailors arrested by Iran. Our paper has a picture of the yacht, the Kingdom of Bahrain, while the Mail and the Sun have a cheerful shot of four of the crew our lads nabbed is the sun's caption no state guarantee for dubai world is the lead story in the financial times reporting the dubai government will not bail out its own company as our headline puts it dubai government washes its hands a 59 billion dollar debt pile the report explains the government claims the company is independently run and so doesn't have its debts guaranteed. The Mirror's exclusive lead is about Manchester United footballer Dimitar Berbatov, who it says was caught up in a plot when gangsters threatened to kidnap his wife and baby. And the Telegraph carries a large picture of Glenda Stone, the entrepreneur who chairs the task force for women's enterprise. It claims she's been accused of bullying her female staff with an intimidating management style and abusive outbursts. There's more news and sport throughout the day at guardian.co.uk.
The United States wants to appoint a new international high representative in Afghanistan who will keep the pressure on Hamid Karzai to clean up his government. It's part of a package of political measures accompanying the deployment of tens of thousands more troops, which will be announced tonight by Barack Obama. Yesterday, Gordon Brown announced Britain would send 500 more troops. In addition to the UK and the USA, eight countries have already made offers of additional troops and that other countries are likely to follow. In our Washington office is our correspondent Ewan McCaskill. But first, on the line from Brighton to tell us about this new high representative post, our diplomatic editor Julian Borgia. The Americans, Richard Holbrook in particular, are not happy about the way the UN mission has been functioning in Kabul. They want uh, someone uh, a bit more abrasive in his relations with uh, the Hamid Karzai government, someone to flex international muscles a bit more than the uh, current UN representative there, Kayadi, uh, with whom uh, Richard Holbrook is unhappy. Uh, and so this is an attempt really to have a much more muscular international civilian presence uh, there in Kabul. And are the US allies, like including Britain, signed up to this? No, not really. Uh, there's a certain amount of resistance uh, among the Europeans and in Canada uh, at what is seen as being a way to bypass uh, Hamid Karzai, potentially undermine what leg- legitimacy he has left, and also to bypass and undermine the United Nations. And so there's a certain amount of queasiness about this proposal, and it's by no means a done deal. Ewan McCaskill in Washington, this would be part of a a much wider package being announced tonight by Barack Obama. It is, yeah. He's got a difficult balancing act. He's got to try and persuade the American people that this isn't another Vietnam, that he's not escalating the war uh, in such a way that uh, America's going to be dragged into this for another 10, 15, 20 years. Um, But at the same time, he's got to try and reassure uh, the Afghanistan government and the Pakistan government that uh, America's not about to sort of uh, leave the region uh, next year, the year after, that they're in there for a long-term commitment. So it's a difficult uh, trick he's got to pull off. Um, he's sending in sort of thirty to 35,000 more US troops. That will bring the total US force up to 100,000. Um, that's almost sort of double what uh, Bush had. Julian, do the, do the Allies broadly agree on, on what we might get tonight, I guess, is, is an exit strategy? I mean, do, would the Allies um, be all signed up to, to that, broadly speaking? Well, I think they face the same dilemma that Ewan was talking about. On one hand, we, they don't want to give the signal to Pakistan and the Taliban that uh, there's a fixed duration to this after which uh, NATO will leave. Uh, on the other hand, they want to show something to their publics who are fed up of this war, they've been there eight years, and they want to see light at the end of the tunnel. And the way round it that Gordon Brown found was to announce the beginning of a process rather than the end of a process. He said that uh, at the London conference in January, what they'll talk about is a timetable for transition district by district to uh, Afghan control. And so it gave the impression it, it, it created a sense that, that, that at least there was a process underway uh, leading towards uh, a way out of Afghanistan without uh, pinning uh, Britain or the NATO allies down to a, to a final date for, for uh, leaving altogether. And Ewan, do you think we'll see any surprises this evening? I don't think there'll be any surprises because uh, we had lots of this detail in March and uh, 
so much of it has already come out in the uh, media. But there's a, there is a fundamental change from the strategy in March, and it, it alludes to what Julian was talking about. Uh, part of the reason it's so unpopular in America is that almost daily we hear about uh, more US casualties. And I think the intention is to sort of draw back and protect the cities, the big population areas, and cede territory to the Taliban. You know, l- you know leave the villages in the sort of remote parts of uh, Helmand province, uh, accept that that's indefensible, and uh, you know, try and protect the cities. But that itself is a dangerous policy. If you leave lots of ground to the Taliban, that will be seen as an expansion. And even cities like Kandahar, uh, the Taliban already control the outskirts of uh, Kandahar. Uh, lots of Taliban people have infiltrated in large numbers into Kandahar. So 35,000 troops, extra troops, isn't actually that many. So th- this isn't the sort of panacea for Afghanistan's problems. Ewan McCaskill, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash Afghanistan. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. I'm outside King's Cross St Pancras Underground Station, one of the busiest on the network. Um, In a moment we'll hear from Caroline Pidgeon, she's the chairman of the uh, Transport Committee of the London Assembly, which has produced a report today um, looking at the way passengers cope with overcrowding on the tube. Well, let's find out from some of them how they cope. They're so packed. Doesn't and when you've got cases... Any, doesn't anybody work now, you know? <laughs> when I worked in London, people used to start work no later than half past nine, but now it, it can be 11 o'clock in the morning, and they're still huge, not with tourists, but with people travelling to work. Overcrowded, dirty, hot in the summer. Do you, do you sort of find yourself um, behaving differently when it's overcrowded, you know, to other, towards other people? Sometimes, depending on who's next to you. I don't like um, when it's really crowded. I find a lot of, my dad will kill me if I say this, but the businessmen on the train, they never give up their seats for the old ladies on the train. They're always barging forward and, yeah, it's not nice when it's crowded. I try not to go in rush hour. I wouldn't like to live in London and uh, cope with your tube. We're getting trams in Edinburgh. Excuse me, sir. I'm from The Guardian. I'm just trying to find out what people think about using the underground. Is that something that you enjoy? I have to say I do. I come from the northeast, and I hear lots of people here complaining about the underground, but I find it, there's always a train when I want it. They're crowded, but fine, but it gets them to my destination, so very few problems. Why was it not a pleasant experience? Just the way people pushed to get on it, it was just overcrowded. Were people polite or not? No, they just, when there was a, a little gap, they just pushed everybody to get on and just made you move, they just pushed you from behind, so... And it wasn't really, when you have children, wasn't it very children friendly? As a pregnant woman or something like that, you know, do you, would you would you be prepared to give up your seat for them? I would, yes, but not everybody does. No. Um, but normally, because it's so crowded, you don't get a seat. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we've heard, the London Assembly's Transport Committee publishes a report today into overcrowding, and Caroline Pidgeon, who chairs the committee, outlines some of the strategies passengers have been adopting when faced with an overcrowded tube train. Some of the people sort of talk to us about, you know, mentally preparing, psyching themselves up, you know, to struggle to clamber on board. They talk about sort of switching off, as it were, shutting down, listening to music, turning their back on people. Um, A lot of them have said they'll put up with really, you know, uncomfortable sort of loss of personal space in order to get to their meeting on time. And, you know, some even described it as, you know, survival of the fittest almost attitude, a dog-eat-dog type attitude. How bad is overcrowding on London's tube system? 
Well, you know, with a billion journeys a year on the tube, you know, I don't think passengers expect to have empty trains, but our report has clearly showed that there is severe overcrowding, particularly um, at certain times of the day and on certain lines, the central and northern lines in particular, uh, at peak times are severely overcrowded. And we found that Passengers are very resilient, you know, they, but they do suffer with this. And over 80% of respondents told us that they experienced overcrowding, which caused them discomfort. And more than half even found that they were unable to board the first train in the morning to get to work. So we, our report looks at this, looks at their experience and makes some recommendations on what London Underground should do to improve the situation. The level of rudeness of a lot of other passengers is quite disturbing as well. Well, I say passengers, you know, are resilient I and mean, they put up with a lot, but they, a lot of them and the evidence they gave us showed that they feel like they're going into battle in the morning. They're psyching themselves up for a struggle to clamber on board, you know, and sort of normal behaviour sort of almost goes out the window at times. People, you know, dash for a seat regardless of who might be around, whether it's someone who's pregnant or or you know, someone with a disability or whatever. Sometimes people just, you know, put their blinkers on and shut down, as it were, in in the way they go to work in order to cope with it because it is, you know, very crowded. We're talking in some bits of the line about four passengers for every square metre, so it's uncomfortably close. And sometimes people just go into this automatic pilot routine, as it were, just to just to cope with it on their way to work. Caroline Pigeon. I'm John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, villagers find a novel use for their red telephone box. I put those up. It was a simple job. Uh, down to the local hardware store, by the four shelves, and about half an hour with an electric drill and a screwdriver, and the transformation was complete. But first... Cambridgeshire Police Force is to pay damages to a woman who was raped, admitting it never even investigated her allegations. Guardian reporter Rachel Williams says it's the first known case of its kind in the UK. Well, the officer who was handed the investigation after the initial contact was made with the woman and notes were taken uh, told an internal investigation that he thought that this was something that needed to be moved forward quickly, um, but he wanted further information and um, he wanted to go and send an investigator to go and see the victim to get more evidence. But instead, he didn't record the crime straight away and says that through his own forgetfulness that the paperwork the initial account was on his was put on his desk and w- with other matters going on he forgot about it so basically stuff was piled up on top of his desk and the, and the paperwork relating to this case was just kind of buried that's what seems to have happened um and he says um that when he heard from the woman two months later or when the, when the force heard from the woman two months later saying what's happened why haven't i heard from you again he realized what had happened um and, and realized that he'd made a grave error in not recording the crime but the the victim herself feels that because she had mental health problems she suffers from bipolar disorder that this was the reason why she was kind of ignored almost in in the first instance and the delay meant that crucial evidence was lost. That's right. After the attack, um, the the man involved forced the woman to a nearby cash point where he made her withdraw money from her account, £200, to give to him. And this, it's thought, would have been on CCTV. But unfortunately, the footage, by the time the, the officers came to look for that, 
having had the delay of the papers being lost on the desk, by the time they came to it, that footage would have been wiped already. What, what are the implications of this case for holding the police to account? Well, it's interesting that this case, the woman was going to bring a case in, in court um, using the Human Rights Act, saying that her human rights have been breached by the police in this case. In, in the end, she took this out-of-court settlement for £3,500. But it is something we're seeing increasingly with victims of crime using the Human Rights Act to, to, to hold police to account. And also, women's campaigners have said to me that they're increasingly seeing women's organisations not necessarily going all the way to court or, or issuing legal cases, but just saying to authorities, look, you realise this, this breaches human rights, this breaches the right to life, uh, this breaches the right to, um, to, to not be subject to inhumane and degrading treatment. So they actually hope that this case will, will go some way towards uh, authorities taking this kind of case more seriously in the future? That's right. I think there's a, there's a hope that, that other, other groups and other victims may see what's happened here and think this is something that, that I can use for myself. And equally, the authorities may look at it and think this is something we must take seriously. Rachel Williams. There's been widespread panic on the world's markets since Dubai World, owned by the state of Dubai, asked creditors to suspend its debt repayments. So how's the crisis affected life in the eye of the storm? The Guardian's John Henley is in Dubai. I mean, it's absolutely clear that if they're involved here in the um, property and, and construction business, then, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're taking a pretty bad bath, really. And they're, they're, but it's true to say that they've been taking that bath for um, the best part of a year now. Um, you know, any number, some 400 projects are on ice here, representing about £300 billion worth of, of new developments, apparently. Um, and, um, yes, I mean, architects, Architects and designers, um, builders, and the actual labourers, most of whom come from sort of the Indian subcontinent, India and Pakistan and, and Bangladesh, um, are, are, are said to be leaving in vast numbers. The population um, of Dubai is apparently supposed to be down by nearly 20% <laughs> at the end of the year in a month's time over what it was um, a year earlier. Um, but, you know, that said, um, you know, it, it's the property business that's that sort of brought it to the brink. I mean, the place has, has borrowed insanely um, for completely insane projects. The, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a thing called The World, um, which is just off the coast. It's where it was going to be 300 um, islands, man-made artificial islands representing, uh, you know, every, every kind of continent and country uh, uh, in the world. Um, that's just been halted. It's just sort of a, a, you can barely see it really from the shore. Uh, it's just a sort of a, a, a load of little kind of sandbanks slipping gently into the sea. Um, and that plainly, those kind of ambitions were, were, were just ridiculous. From the point of view of, uh, of London and someone that possibly doesn't know much about finance, John, I mean, I, I just thought, you know, it, it looked, seemed ridiculous from, from the off, really. You know, it's incredible to think that a project like that could even get off the ground. Well, I think you're right, um, and I think they just got carried away by the boom because the property boom here um, really was kind of a distillation of, of what was going on everywhere else and a concentration of it. I mean, and people were buying at the height of the boom, you know, 2002, 2003, 2004, um, when these projects were announced. People were buying entire artificial islands off plan, you know, for a couple of million dollars, merely, um, and then what's called in the trade, flipping them 
them. In other words, selling them a year later or so, still before work had even started on the whole project, and making vast profits. Um, and it, you know, uh, it really did seem, I think, like the sky was the limit here. I mean, I, it's plain to anybody looking from outside that it was always going to crash at some stage. Uh, but I guess if you were involved in it, and as long as the money kept coming, which it did, um, a lot of it from, from Western investors, um, then you just kept going. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. The residents of a Somerset village have had two bits of bad news recently. They stood to lose their charming red phone box and their mobile library service. But they found a solution, as Stephen Morris reports from Westbury Submendip. So we've got a, a customer here by the looks of it. May I ask what book you've got oh, there? Well, that you're I've got an Ian Rankin here. Fresh Market Close, yes. Ian Rankin, a yes, detective I, a thriller. detective thriller, yes, and I do like thrillers. <laughs> Let me get out of your way so you can choose something else. One yes, moment, okay. we have to shuffle around a bit. Okay, so you put that back on the shelf and then you uh, you look for something else. Fred West up there, real life story of Fred no, West. No, I wouldn't be so interested in that. I'd quite like, I'd like Michael Connolly if they've got any of those. But I guess they're popular at the moment, so they might be all be gone. The name is Bob Dolby, D-O-L-B-Y, and I'm a member of the Westbury Submendit Parish Council. And you kind of a librarian as well for what must be the smallest library in the country, in, uh, in a phone box. Not so much a librarian. We were offered the opportunity to buy the box from BT for £1, and then subsequently, uh, thanks to an idea from Janet Fisher, one of our neighbours, it was converted into a book exchange. And that compensated for the um, removal of the mobile library service. So the idea is ever so simple. If you have a book that you've read and wish to dispose of, bring it along, leave it on the shelf, and if you see anything that's of interest, please take it. And in addition to books, we now have uh, CDs, audio tapes, DVDs. So it's almost a complete library service open 24 hours a day and illuminated at night. And you live very close to the new library? Absolutely, opposite it in fact. We can watch how many people are coming to get their books out. And are lots of people using it? Yes, really quite a lot. And the, the stock seems to be changing all the time. So have you got any books from here so far? I certainly have and I can see a tape of mine that I've brought in right here. So, Sir Laurence Olivier, the yes. Charles Dickens collection. That's him reading Charles Dickens. It is it? indeed, yes. So you've had enough of that, have you? <laughs> I've had enough of that. <laughs> Once was enough. <laughs> so what sort of books are there here? I'm just having a look. It's uh, a wide selection, but a lot of um, light fiction, I think. Um, thrillers uh, and, and some unusual things like um, manuals for this, that and the other. Some nice big picture books. Um, well, you can see for yourself. Yes, true. Lots of true crime books here. Do you mm. have a, oh, you have yes. some crime fans in the oh, garden yes. by, in the in the village by the looks of it? And also for children, there's a whopping selection down there for children. Oh, yes, Hor Horrid Henry and the Bogey Babysitter sounds good. Mm. Wouldn't mind reading that myself. And there's what, how many shelves? One, two, three, four shelves. Who put those up then? Uh, I, I put those up. It was a simple job. Uh, down to the local hardware store, buy the four shelves, and about half an hour with an electric drill and a screwdriver, 
and the transformation was complete. And a notice on the outside, I think, I think a joke saying, quite please, as Yes, well. indeed. That's, that's to add to the library atmosphere. What we don't have, of course, is a, uh, the old telephone, and it gives a whole new dimension to the, to the phone book. It's one. another detective, one American, of course, and I think his his stories are quite often made into films for the television. So that might be something quite worth having a look at. I think I'll take that one over and have a look. Stephen Morris reporting, Andy Duckworth and Tim Maybe with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Goodbye. <laughs>